Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Dare to Wealth podcast. Uh, this is Guilherme, and I will be, I will be hosting this episode. Uh, but before we start, I just would you like to remind everyone um, to give us a follow on Twitter. Also, take a look at our newsletter. Um, and we also have lots of really nice uh, podcast episodes. So make sure that you listen all of them. And today's guest is Dr. Charlotte Winder. She's a veterinarian and associate professor in the Department of Population Medicine of the University of Guelph. So, Charlotte, welcome uh, to the Dare to Guelph podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Yeah. So perhaps I think it makes sense if we could start with uh, you sharing a little bit uh, about your story and your experience in the dairy industry. Sure. Um, so I went to vet school at OVC. Um, I graduated in 2008 and then I worked uh, in a private practice near London, Ontario for six years. Uh, so when I worked there, I worked um, predominantly with dairy producers. I was working just as a food animal practitioner. So I did work a little bit with uh, beef producers and small ruminant producers, but um, probably 80% of my time was with our, our dairy clients. Um, I then came back to OVC and did a DVSC um, in population medicine and epidemiology, uh, where my work focused on um, appropriate pain control practices for disbudding. And during my time doing my DVSC, I also practiced with our ambulatory clinic, uh, teaching vet students and servicing a small number of local clients. Uh, since then, I did a short postdoc, um, working with a bunch of systematic reviews uh, and meta-analyses looking at uh, antimicrobial use in different uh, production animal species. Um, and then I was uh, fortunate to have a faculty position that I got at, uh, at the OVC. Uh, so I've been in that position um, since 2018. Uh, and, and there I do a mix of uh, teaching in our veterinary program um, research, and I also work uh, on our uh, farm service doing ambulatory calls. That's great. So today we have lots of uh, really nice topics related to welfare and health on dairy farming. So we're going to touch on um, half-calf management, also pain control practices in young stock, um, best practices uh, for down cows and also management of um, sheep colostrum. But um, I think it would uh, it would be interesting if we could start uh, this episode talking a little bit about the Canadian um, National Dairy Study and more specifically about the heifer calf management. Uh, we recorded a really nice episode with Dr. David Kelton uh, and he explained a little bit uh, better about this study. So perhaps you could give us an overview uh, on heifer uh, heifer calf raising in Canada uh, based on this uh, national study? Okay, yeah, for sure. So I was uh, lucky to work with some of the data that came out of the 2015 Canadian National Dairy Study, uh, which was a really um, large study, the first of its undertaking in Canada, uh, and really gave us some valuable insights into kind of what uh, is happening on Canadian dairy farms at that time. Um, so the data that I worked with was related to the rearing of replacement animals or rearing of, of heifer calves. Um, it was part of a, a questionnaire um, open to was essentially open to all licensed dairy producers in Canada, um, and over 1,300 uh, respondents um, answered the the questionnaire. 
So this um, this portion of the survey that we looked at uh, looked at calf health and management practices. We looked at um, more specifically disbudding and dehorning practices. Uh, we looked at stillbirths and heifer mortality, as well as um, did some model building looking at factors associated with um, with calf mortality or more specifically heifer calf mortality. Um, so we looked at, uh, first we were looking at or things that uh, were related to management practices around calving. Um, so around colostrum feeding, whether uh, heifer calves were allowed to nurse their dam, uh, how long they spent in the, in the calving pen, when they were given colostrum, um, and how much milk they were fed over the, over the milk feeding period. Um, we also looked at, at housing practices, so whether they were housed in individual or group pens, um, and, uh, and then we started to look at, at factors associated with, um, with calf mortality and calf loss. So um, at the time of the survey, so again, it was done in, uh, in 2015, um, over half of the respondents uh, allow or um, tried to never allow their, their calves to nurse their dam, which meant that conversely about half of, just under half of producers um, did allow some contact between dam and calf where calves were nursing from their dam. Um, we had about 17% of producers where they removed calves within 30 minutes of birth. Uh, just over two-thirds of producers reported that they always fed calves uh, four liters of colostrum within 12 hours of birth. Um, and a smaller number, so just under 20% uh, fed colostrum between the hours of uh, 9 p.m. and 4 a.m. Um, and so we were looking at that kind of as a factor associated with, you know, um, how large the farm is, how many staff members are on the farm. Uh, we looked at pasteurizing colostrum. So at that time, 5% of producers responding to our survey pasteurized their colostrum. Um, and then in terms of housing and uh, feeding over the pre-weaning period, um, at the time of the survey, 40% of producers had calves in individual pens, 34% uh, in group pens, 21% um, in individual hutches, and at that time, 2% reported tethering calves, which um, is uh, not allowed according to uh, ProAction, which I'm hoping is likely much different today, um, but at the time, uh, that number did report tethering uh, calves. Um, in terms of the group size for calves, most of the producers with, uh, with calves in groups, so about 60% had a group of between three or 10, three to 10 calves, 30% uh, housed a group of two, so housed calves in pairs, and about 10% of producers had calves in groups of larger than 10 at that time. Um, milk feeding really varied, so there were a number of producers that were feeding four liters or, or less per day, but the average um, amount of milk offered to calves per day during the pre-weaning period was eight liters. Um, and then I'll, I'll talk just really briefly about our mortality data, which was which was very interesting. So, um, of course, with the with a survey, any of these surveys are quite long, and so um, you know people start the survey and may or may not answer different questions in the survey. Um, so again, we had just over thirteen hundred people uh, respond. Um, we uh, there were some that didn't report some demographic data or didn't report raising calves, so we didn't include them in our section. So for this section, we kind of started with just over a thousand respondents. Um, but interestingly, when we started to look at uh, mortality, because they were reporting um, mortality rates in the um, pre-weaned uh, heifer calves, we had uh, th about 300 that didn't report anything, so they didn't answer that section. Um, and then of the people that responded, so that was about 700 respondents, uh, we had nearly 200 of those say that they had no heifer mortality, so they reported zero. Uh, so they had to type in a number zero for both the pre and post wean period. And so 
Um, that was really interesting because, I mean, if it, if it would be true, it would be amazing. Um, but just, you know, based on the number of calves born on farms, it's a really, it's it's definitely unrealistic that that many farms would have had 0% mortality. So it's likely that those people maybe just didn't want to answer the question and maybe thought they had to put a value in um, or maybe didn't know the answer. Um, because again, this was based on their recall, not based on any records. So, um, you know, we don't really know what that indicates, but it at least indicates that either they, you know, didn't want to answer that section or really didn't know what their calf mortality was. Um, when we looked at those remaining respondents that actually gave us a number because we really didn't feel comfortable including, you know, that many uh, zeros in an average. So um, for farms that did report at least one calf dying, we had an average pre-reading mortality rate of um, six and a half percent. Um which is similar to, to other surveys. But I think the one thing that kind of highlights there um, is that I think, and again, based on maybe some anecdotal information on, on firms that I work with, um, is that often that information maybe isn't getting recorded and firms maybe aren't aware of their mortality rates. Um, and so that's uh, potentially like an opportunity to do um, some improvements in terms of encouraging producers to um, keep track of calf mortality, you know, as a, as a, indicator of calf health and you know to be able to determine if you know different practices are implemented if they're if they're successful or, or not yeah uh, that's actually uh, very interesting and perhaps there is a uh, room for improvement on records and perhaps uh, evaluating better the, the mortality rates right or paying more attention on it so i was gonna ask um if you could um perhaps uh talk a little bit more about the main diseases that are causing uh those uh, mortality rates and perhaps um, what what do you think about uh, what could be the risk factors or things related um, to, to mortalities? Thanks. Yeah. So, um, so this survey didn't specifically ask about um, about diseases, but we definitely know that um, you know the common diseases impacting um, calf health and and affecting mortality in our preweaned animals are typically enteric and respiratory disease, so um, scours or diarrhea and pneumonia. Um, there's certainly other diseases too. Umbilical infections would definitely be um, in the top three as well. Um, that can also cause joint infections, uh, and there are certainly other diseases that can impact calves, but but, um, you know, focusing on on kind of our, our bigger number of um, of diseases from scours, pneumonia, and umbilical uh, infections are definitely going to have the biggest impact on on reducing calf illness and calf mortality. Um, and so, most, I mean, all of these causes are, are infectious in nature, um, and there's definitely lots of studies that are showing or that have shown, you know, the the importance, and we know about the importance of um, passive transfer. Uh, in terms of immunoglobulins in our calves and how important that is um, for those calves to be able to have um, better odds at not um, succumbing to disease and, and also growing and performing better. Um, so again, this is kind of why part of the, the National Dairy Study focused so much around asking questions um, on that early life management in terms of colostrum, um, but also looking at, at factors later in the pre-weaning period and looking at things like milk intake. Um, Definitely, I think messages around colostrum have been communicated to producers, you know, heavily over the last 
many years because, you know, there's been such a, a plethora of, of research and evidence about how important those practices are. Um, and I think there's likely lots of improvements on farms um, over that time period, but um, definitely there's there's still challenges and still a ways to go there, as well as looking at the, the risk factors during the pre-weaning period, you know, beyond just um, passive transfer and colostrum management, um, looking at nutrition um, and uh, reducing disease pressure by looking at things like, um, you know, air quality, um, stocking density, bedding, um, things like that to keep the environment, because often these diseases are um, infectious, uh, but they're things that are kind of prevalent in the environment. So they're not, there, there are for sure diseases that are more associated with a bug coming onto a farm and causing a disease. But a lot of times these diseases are caused by things that are on the farm they're going to be there anyway. It's just a matter of reducing um, the amount in the environment by keeping things, you know, clean and dry and ideally having, you know, lower stocking density, um, making sure nutrition is optimized. So calves have, um, you know, enough calories and health status um, that their immune system is working well. And of course, making sure that their um, passive transfer levels are, are appropriate and that their colostrum management is really good. Um, so a lot of it is is kind of generic um, things that can be done, but the, it's nice because those things are going to impact the risk of all kinds of different diseases. Yeah, that's great. So uh, we had we we recorded an episode with Dr. Mike Steele, and we talked a lot about colostrum uh, composition, but also colostrum and milk feeding um, and pre-weaning stra uh, strategies. So it's interesting that you mentioned about it, um, and all the information one complement uh, each other, but. Okay, so just to finish this this first topic about the national study, perhaps um, I know that you already mentioned a few a few things, but perhaps you could just give your um, your opinion or perhaps some recommendations about um, what's being done right and what can be improved and what people should what farmers should be paying attention um, related to half calf management. Yeah, so I think, um, again, with this study, it's difficult to compare it to things done previously just because we haven't had, uh, you know, a nationwide study done in the past. And I think it would be really exciting to, um, I know it was a humongous undertaking, but to do something like that in the future to be able to, to benchmark some things. Um, but yeah, I think there's lots of things to be excited about. Um, and again, this this was 2015. And I think if we look since then, there's probably even more positive change. Um, but I think even looking at that time at the the level of milk fed in the pre-wean period, um, having that, that average value of eight liters, there were definitely farms that were offering, you know, 16, 20 liters as a maximum volume. I mean, obviously not every calf is going to drink that, but having that be um, offered to calves, um, often that's associated with using an automated feeder, but um, there certainly were farms uh, feeding milk manually that were offering high volumes of milk uh, in multiple feedings a day. Um, so I think that is is likely a huge improvement from from the past and shows some um, some some changes over over time. Um, definitely calf housing, I think, is is probably reflected in more farms adopting automated milk feeding systems and then housing calves in groups as a result of that. Um, and and certainly other things that we looked at in the survey, like uh, disbudding and dehorning practices, looking at previous studies um, have shown that, you know, pain control is being used um, more often there as well. Okay, great. It's nice that you mentioned about that, because our next topic would be pain control practices uh, on young stock. So um, I think it would be, be interesting if we could start about you talking um, of why did you decide to, to study and why did you um, decide to focus on this very important uh, topic on welfare and health of their farming? 
Yeah, so this was some work that I started as a DVSC student and then um, continued on as a postdoc and had, um, as a faculty member, I've had uh, multiple students work in this area. Um, and so, yeah, initially I started on it because it was the, the project that my advisor had for me. Um, but I, I think it's a, I don't know, I, I found the area really interesting and and actually to connect it with um, what I was doing in practice. So, I mean, disbudding is a very common practice. We're definitely seeing more pulled caps now, which is which is awesome because that's essentially a way to eliminate having to worry about it at all. Um, but al although we are seeing, um, you know, the emergence of pulled genetics and on some farms, like one of the firms I work with with our ambulatory service, um, they have a lot of pulled calves. But again, it's probably, you know, 15% of calves maybe um, on their farm that are born that are pulled. Um, so disbudding is definitely still a very common practice on farms and when i was working as a veterinarian in private practice before i came back to do anything in academia um yeah it was it was interesting so so in school when i went to school they you know taught us to use local anesthetic and i probably don't remember much more than that i don't know if they talked about an NSAID. i i probably should remember but i was probably in a one of you know 600 lectures um so definitely local anesthetic block i learned how to do it and you know dehorning obviously is is much easier if your block works and the calf is frozen um and so when i started in practice um a lot of the herds that i got to work with at first were herds um that a veterinarian that was kind of slowing down and starting to think about retirement had um given to me to to take over as a herd vet um and and this particular vet actually the practice i worked at had about eight bovine veterinarians and um, they all used local anesthetic for disbudding, except for the one vet that was retiring. He didn't use anything. Um, he just kind of held them down and then got the procedure over with. And that was what the clients were used to. Um, but me coming out of school, that was not what I was used to. And so um, I actually, this is maybe bad from a communication standpoint, but I didn't really have a conversation with them. I just started, they were expecting me to dehorn calves at Herd Health. So after we did the preg checks, I did the calves and I just started using freezing and I didn't really ask. Um, and no one had a problem with it. Everybody was, some people actually commented like, oh, wow, like that's different and the calves are not struggling. So um, I had a good reception with that. But yeah, in practice, I never used an NSAID. I just used a local anesthetic. I think, you know, if they were really older calves or the calf, the freezing didn't work really well, I'd give them an NSAID. At the time, the NSAIDs that we had available were um, ketoprofen and flinixin. Uh, we didn't have meloxicam for, for large animals at that time. So anyway, then I, I came back to school and was doing this dehorning project. So I was reading all the papers about it and realized how important an NSAID is from, from all these papers. Like, you know, the local anesthetic works really well right at the beginning. So you get that, um, you know, desensitization for one to two hours after um but after that time period it's it's really consistent like all the literature shows you know you get a rise in inflammation that causes um pain that you can see it in in cortisol you can see it in pain behaviors um and when you give them an NSAID it essentially removes that but I think in in practice at the time it wasn't common um and if you're on the farm doing the disbudding whether you're the vet doing it or the farmer doing it or someone working on the farm doing it um you know, you can see the difference with the local anesthetic, but the NSAID, you'd have to be a researcher sitting at the farm watching ear flicks to be able to, I think, really appreciate the impact of the NSAID because it's over a longer period of time when, you know, you're not you're not necessarily with the calves. Um, so that that for me was a real eye opener because I had not been doing that practice myself. <laughs> um, and so, yeah.
Yeah, and I think, you know, the industry has really changed quite a bit now, and it's uh, really commonplace um, for, for it to be used and is is actually required by by ProAction that an NSAID is used too. Yeah, which actually it's really great, right? So uh, you already mentioned a little bit, but perhaps you could uh, we could just talk a little bit more or I was just wondering if you if you have seen anything uh, on the benefits and you, of course they're going to be a long term right of a better management on this budding and the horning um in, in their farming yeah yeah so i think um so yeah so during my dvsc and with um a phd student that i had cassandra reedman um we've done a number of studies looking at uh, pain management practices for um, caustic paste budding um and so, uh, you know, historically, a lot of the disbudding research was looking at um, cautery disbudding. And so uh, we looked at chemical disbudding, which is just a different method to cause the same amount of tissue damage, um, just because there was less known. It's a different kind of pain. But essentially, you found the same thing. You need to have the NSAID there for that inflammatory pain. Um, but looking at the at the benefits, so yes, so one benefit, a lot of these studies are kind of short-term looking at kind of acute and inflammatory pain. So we're looking at the calves for, you know, maybe a few days after the procedure. Um, and uh, it's, it's you know, been shown repeatedly. We, we showed it in a systematic review and meta-analysis um, that indicators of uh, pain, so um, some physiologic indicators like um, heart rate, respiratory rate, uh, cortisol, um, those are all um decreased when we use uh, those pain control practices so a combination of a local anesthetic and an NSAID um, and they're kind of working at two different time periods and when you remove one or the other um, you can see that those values all are higher and they actually mirror quite well uh, behavioral studies looking at things like um, behavioral signs of pain so uh, ear flicks tail flicks um, foot stomping head shaking head rubbing um, so we usually do those with either live scoring or video observation and again, those studies show the same kind of indicators of pain over those time periods. Um, so I think, um, you know, some of those studies maybe have shown uh, benefits in those indicators of pain up to about 48 hours after disbudding. Um, so important from a welfare standpoint there. There has been some work kind of trying to look at um, things like performance. So, um, you know, weight gain, um, you know, do calves that get pain control, you know, eat better for the short term? And does that translate into like a heavier calf fat weaning? There's not a ton of research in that area, but the stuff that's been done is a bit split. So uh, personally, I think if there are differences, they're probably quite slight. Um, but on the other hand, um, there's starting to be more work looking at um, wound healing. So, and and sorry, just maybe to go back to that kind of weight gain for a second. Um, older studies that have looked at, um, so I, all of these studies are looking at disbudding, which essentially means we're, we're doing something to the horn uh, while it's still a horn bud and not a horn. So it's going to be under eight weeks of age. Um, dehorning is going to be done when it's actually attached to the skull. So that would be over that kind of eight, to 16 weeks. I mean, each calf is a bit different when it attaches um, and can be done in, you know, much older animals. Um, and, and there's, uh, I mean, now it's much easier to do them when they're little. Um, and, and we're really looking at disbudding as a practice as opposed to dehorning because we have lots of studies from, you know, many decades ago um, showing the impact of dehorning and how uh, that's that's much more invasive. Um, even with appropriate pain control, it sets animals back in terms of, yeah, weight gain and performance. Um, and so, so I think that practice for sure can impact 
kind of long-term um, performance. Whether we're using pain control for disbudding in a calf that's three weeks old, I don't know if we have evidence that that calf is actually going to be, you know, perform better when they're a first lactation animal. Um, but that being said, there's lots of evidence that that calf um, has better welfare over that time period. And I think if we also look at another aspect of this, which would be, you know, what do we want to be doing as an industry? Um, from an industry sustainability standpoint, I think, you know, ensuring that we're um, doing practices uh, that have, you know, good animal welfare, um, as, as good an animal welfare component as we can. So making sure that we're managing pain or eliminating pain where we can, um, that's going to be really important, I think, from a sustainability standpoint. So yeah, maybe your heifers won't milk more in their first lactation, but if you, you know, are using appropriate pain control, it means someone will actually want to buy the milk from those heifers in their first lactation. Um, but uh, I'll maybe just, sorry, add one other thing, because I think this is a really interesting area that's kind of just being explored, um, kind of on the, the pain control standpoint, but kind of more longer term. So, yeah, we know maybe from a performance standpoint, maybe there's not huge differences, um, but there's some really cool work uh, coming out of UC Davis um, and, and some other institutions too now that are looking at wound healing and um, looking at uh, pain sensitivity later in life. I think, and also UBC, I believe, has uh, just recently published in this area too. Um, so yeah, typically our studies have looked at pain in that first few days after disbudding, um, but the wounds that we cause these calves take, um, you know, weeks to months to heal and um, there's definitely evidence that those wounds are painful during that time period. Um, my PhD student did a study looking at using additional doses of NSAID to see if we could help control pain and and if that would impact healing and was interesting because that one found that um, the additional NSAID did help pain over a longer period of time. So this was in the weeks after disbudding, um, but it actually extended the time that it took to heal. So all the calves got one dose of an anti-inflammatory at uh, disbudding, but um, the calves that got additional, the additional dose um, actually took longer to heal. And that's similar to um, the human literature where um, anti-inflammatories are used for pain mitigation. Um, but because inflammation is a normal part of healing, using those anti-inflammatories also has a cost, which is at a little bit at the result of, of wound healing. But the, the final thing I'll just mention on the um, pain sensitivity side, I haven't done anything in this area, but I do think it's very interesting. Um, and it's, and it's very novel, so we don't really have any conclusions in it, but um, the research questions are essentially, you know, when we subject young animals to these painful procedures, I mean, we are using pain mitigation, but there's probably some amount of pain, um, you know, compared to not doing these procedures. Um, does it impact how they perceive pain later in life? Uh, and so some of these studies have there was an initial one at UC Davis that suggested that maybe doing it quite young, so three days, I believe, versus, I think it was maybe three weeks, but maybe... <laughs> Don't quote me on that one. It was looking at it done still young, but a little bit um, older than three days of age. Uh, and they found some differences in pain sensitivity later on where animals done younger were more sensitive to pain. Um, but I think that has, you know, in other studies, they've, they've shown different associations. But um, kind of thinking about how those procedures impact that those calves experiences later in life, I think is pretty, pretty interesting. Yes, that's actually very, very interesting. So, um before we jump to cows, uh, I just would like to um, maybe to conclude this this beginning of this conversation uh, where we we talked about the, the the national survey and also uh, pain control practices. So, would you like to hear about um, your opinion on perhaps um, 
which other practices um, should get more 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 attention when we think about welfare and, and health of young stock? And also, I was going to ask you, um, how do you see things, um, this uh, management of young stock um, heifer calves? Uh, how, how do you see this in the future? And also, if you have seen any um, any benefits of technologies uh, being included and perhaps helping uh, or improving health and welfare. So what's what would be how, how it looks like in the future and what's what would be the role of new technologies on on these these topics that we have been talking about? Great question. Um, I think uh, one of the benefits about um, the improvements that have been made in um, how we manage uh, calves is that there's I think there's benefits um, in, in multiple areas. So, you know, if we have a challenge in one area, we don't necessarily have to do an individual thing that, you know, exists in a vacuum and doesn't affect anything else. Um, so I think improvements in terms of how we house calves, um, so say from a nutritional standpoint, with calves having better planes of nutrition, um, maybe having, you know, better environments in terms of less disease pressure. Um, this, in fact, impacts more than than just, say, their their risk of disease or even more than their growth and performance. Um, if we're looking at our, our painful procedures, um, again, my PhD student, Cassandra Reedman, uh, did a study looking at plane of nutrition and wound healing uh, following disbudding and found pretty dramatic differences in wound healing based on their milk intakes. Um, and so I thought that was, that was really interesting. There's also um, some really cool work uh, looking at the impact of, of calves' effective states on their perceptions of pain. Um, and uh, and like vice versa, how how pain can impact effective state. But certainly from from human literature, we know um, that your um, kind of your way that you view the world also impacts the way that you view um, negative things that are happening. And so, if we have calves that are are really well fed in comfortable environments, and if they are generally happier calves because you know they're not they're not experiencing say chronic hunger, um, their wounds heal faster faster after disbudding. And I think it's probably likely that that setback of, of a procedure that might be involving some handling stress is, is better handled by these animals that are probably much more resilient. Um, so I don't know, I think that's, that's really cool that, you know, um, doing one thing, even on the nutrition side is actually impacting things like, you know, how they're, um, you know, how they're responding to pain. Yes, that's that's great. So we actually had a really uh, nice conversation with Dr. Christine Bays, and uh, during this conversation, um, some of the topics was resiliency and also uh, disease resistance. So those are very um, important topics and points when we think about genetics as well and genetic selection. Okay, that's great. So let's jump to best practices of uh, down cows. So we know that. Um, um, this is a problem for every farmer, so perhaps you could um, give us an overview and a background about um, what what could be the risk factors and who are those cows uh, and what have you seen in, in, in their farms? Thanks. Yeah, so um, we have a project going on right now that um, a previous master's student uh, worked on and then we have a PhD student right now who's working on it, um, kind of looking yeah, around looking at down cow management and uh, best practices for managing those down cows. Um, I think it's a really 
challenging issue just because it's often, yeah, very multifactorial. Um, there's different reasons why we have animals that become non-ambulatory or go down. In some cases, you know, metabolic disease. So um, hypocalcemia is a big player there. Um, but in other cases, it can be injuries. Um, we can have different risk factors in terms of um, kind of how, how we know from um, there's not a lot of research in this area, but um, in some cases, uh, there's there's some studies from Australia looking at um, nursing care being the the biggest um, prognostic indicator of cows' success um, once they become non-ambulatory. Um, and so it's it's definitely something that has a lot of moving parts, you know, because um, we definitely have different reasons why animals become non-ambulatory, um, depending on where that happens in a farm. Like we could have a cow that has milk fever, um, but she goes down on a nice bedded pack. Um, no other cows, you know, run into her, jump over her. And she's managed really well. Um, she's provided with feed and water. She's lifted regularly in a humane way. Um, and she recovers really quickly when she's treated for her um, initial hypocalcemia. But we can also have animals that maybe, again, might have a fairly simple disease to treat metabolically, but um, where they go down, they slide, they get additional muscle injuries. Um, maybe we have challenges providing nursing care for them. Maybe the way they get moved is not... Um, you know, atraumatic. Um, and so we can have animals that end up having multiple issues that are going on. And another challenge is, you know, every farm is different in terms of their layout, um, the facilities that they have to look after these animals, how they can move them. Um, and so it's it's definitely a challenging issue. Um, cows are, are just really big animals, and that makes it um, really difficult when they become non-ambulatory. So uh, it's difficult from the standpoint of like physically being able to move them. We need to have, you know, special equipment um, to do that. And also just because they're so big, they end up um, being at risk of getting secondary muscle damage quite quickly after they become non-ambulatory. So um, kind of it's similar in humans. If someone is, um, you know, bedridden for a long period of time, uh, they can get pressure sores, they can get muscle necrosis. And so um, nursing care for those people is really important important to avoid those things or manage them. Um, but in cows, we're getting basically the same thing happening over a really short period of time because they're so heavy um, and there's so much pressure on, on those muscles um, in a, a smaller surface area. So basically have a, a big problem. Um, of course, Probably people listening to this podcast probably are aware of um, some of the animal abuse incidents that have happened that have, you know, made a lot of media attention. And um, a number of them have been surrounding somebody moving a down cow in an inappropriate way. Um, again, because they're really challenging to to move. Um, for sure, we've seen positive improvements in the industry in terms of um, requirements. So in uh, ProAction, even over the last number of years, the requirements around having corrective action plans on your farm to look after down cows in a way that is um, thought out and, um, you know, thought about with uh, your herd veterinarian, um, that's all been, been moving in a forward direction. Um, but again, from a scientific standpoint, um, managing these animals, we, we don't have a lot of, of information out there. Um, and so what our project is, is aiming to look at um, initially uh, is looking at some survey data, looking at kind of what current practices are in terms of how producers in Ontario are looking after non-ambulatory cows, how veterinarians are advising them. Um, and then we want to move forward uh, looking at um, kind of a risk factor analysis. So um, because it's so multifactorial, we've got, you know, different reasons for becoming non-ambulatory. We've got different scenarios in terms of where they might go down in a farm, um, how they might be moved or managed. 
Um, and so we want to kind of plug all of those risk factors in and really try to better understand um, how producers and vets are making decisions around how to look after them, um, when to decide to euthanize them, um, and and how to um, appropriately uh, guide a, a prognostic um, kind of plan for them. So, you know, deciding for this animal, is, is treatment worthwhile or should we euthanize this animal to, um, you know, avoid suffering? Um, and if we are going to treat them, you know, what's the best management plan for the animal? So hopefully um, at the end of this project, that's maybe what we're going to come out with. Yeah. Um, so, no, yeah, that's a very, very, very important uh, topic, research topic. And I know that you're just starting uh, these studies and um, I'm really looking forward to the, to the results and everything. But perhaps um, you could mention or give us some good examples that you have seen um, in the ambulatory and the management of those down cows, for example, uh, if we should lift the cow or perhaps flip it, and you already mentioned about providing feed and water, right, for those cows. So perhaps you could just um, give us or we could talk a little bit about uh, good examples and uh, good strategies, for example, or, or tools or what vets and farmers have been doing and perhaps a way to go, you know. Yeah, no, and we have some initial results from um, from the survey analysis, um, and yeah, so there is definitely some some good news there, and um, a lot of producers, a majority of producers, are um, caring for for down cows in ways that are are appropriate, um, and so there are different options. So certainly, depending on where animals become non-ambulatory, um, often they will need to be moved because they can't be treated and and managed where they go down, um, and so the important thing with um, moving those animals is to make sure that they're not being dragged, um, that they're being placed onto something and then either being lifted or, or carried. Um, and so that could be on a, a stone boat where an animal is um, kind of rolled or lifted onto onto a little sled um, or a stone boat where that can then be dragged. So the cow isn't being dragged, the platform that she on that she's on is being dragged, um, or certainly a bucket of a front end loader um, if the animal can fit in there appropriately, um, you know, and essentially rolling animals into um, somewhere where they can then be lifted. Um, unfortunately, we did see some respondents um, in our survey saying that that animals were um, moved using hip lifters, um, which hip lifters are, are certainly a useful tool to assist animals in uh, in rising. They're placed on the on the hips um, and then attached to um, a skid steer or a tractor or something to um, help them take the weight off of their back end and help them um, rise. Um, but they're not an appropriate tool to be used to move an animal. Um, and so we did see that that there were some producers reporting that they were moving animals with those um, devices. Um, yeah, in terms of once the animal is is in a location, ideally something with really good traction, so a deep bedded pack or sand, um, something where um, they'll have traction to to get up as opposed to to slipping. Um, something like that is good. Uh, ideally, again, somewhere where they can access feed and water. So often that would mean an individual pen just so that they don't have to compete with other animals for, for feed and water. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of what the, the best practice is for, for lifting, I think that's one where um, we maybe don't have, you know, concrete numbers on, you know, how many hours should they go. Um, but ideally lifting them um, for sure multiple times a day. Again, it probably depends a bit on the cow um, in terms of how, how much we should do that. 
a lot of the things that um, are being used on farms. So most farms are using um, hip lifters or bands or slings to lift a cow, um, which are certainly appropriate and, and useful. Um, things like flotation tanks are definitely kind of gold standard in terms of um, a very atraumatic way to lift a cow and also um, like assist her to rise in a very even way across her whole body. So, I mean, those are, are um, fantastic. However, you know, nobody in our survey reported using them because they're very, um, they're not commonly used on, on farms, um, at least in Ontario, that farms don't have them. Um, and that's something that uh, for our project, at least we're looking at, um, investing in a flotation tank at our research dairy and then offering some training workshops there. I think there's probably a lot of practical barriers in terms of adopting those on individual farms. Um, but yeah, we can do so. So lifting certainly is helpful, especially if the cow will then stand after lifting, um, stand on her own for a period of time that just helps um, with like lymphatic drainage and allowing, um, you know, pressure to be relieved from those areas. Um, but also, yeah, repositioning certainly too. Um, so if animals laying on one side, um, ensuring that she's some animals are going to be moving on their own from side to side, which would be ideal. If an animal isn't doing that, then yeah, ensuring. And again, that can be challenging depending on someone is working on the farm on their own, um, or if they have help to be able to, to reposition the cow to have, um, you know, be on one hip and then the other hip again, multiple times throughout the day. Sure. Oh, sorry. Oh, no, um, I guess, yeah, the only other thing I was going to add, which, which, uh, or maybe we'll get to later too, is, is also to have a plan in terms of, um, you know, knowing what the right treatment plan for that animal is, unless it's a really simple milk fever, which resolves quickly and the animal gets up right after treatment. I think all of these animals likely require an anti-inflammatory just because again of that um, risk for, for um, pressure necrosis. Um, but also having a plan in terms of knowing, okay, when um, is going to be an end point for this animal? Like when should we stop treatment? Or if we know initially something is, is not treatable or, you know, the animal is unable to be relocated without um without doing something inhumane then then um you know when should we be euthanizing yeah sure all right well yeah that's a very uh important research topic and very promising and uh it's good to know that you're looking into it so uh, let's jump to the next uh, to the last topic which which is uh ship colostrum uh management so i know that you have some uh you're going to start some really nice studies and you have some information already on it. So perhaps we could, um, you could give us an overview and talk a little bit about um, immunity transfer and the importance of colostrum on ships and um, why did you decide to, to look at it and why are you exploring uh, this area? Oh, awesome. Thanks. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to uh, this project that um, we're going to be starting with uh, Jasmine Fraser, who's a PhD student who will be starting in September. Um, so yeah, so certainly passive transfer in, in sheep, um, is, is, um, similar to cattle. So, um, similar in terms of, of physiology and, um, looking at, at, uh, you know, transfer, um, through the colostrum of immunoglobulins. And so, um, ensuring that, you know, enough colostrum is consumed, um, soon enough with good enough quality without contamination, um, after birth is, is equally important to lambs as it is to calves. Um, 
However, we, we don't really have the same kind of plethora of, of literature out there. There's certainly lots of studies looking at, you know, what um, is an appropriate IgG level in lambs, um, what are risk factors for um, either poor, um, uh, poor colostrum quality um, or poor levels of passive transfer in lambs in terms of, of the use. Um, so there's, there's research out there. Um, one of the challenges in sheep um, is that there are lots of differences in terms of breeds. We have um, breeds that that are really prolific. We have breeds that have often just singles and twins. And then they're also often managed in very disparate ways. So we've got um, animals managed very intensively, having uh, you know accelerated lambing systems, um, producing more litters per year uh, versus a more extensive system where animals may never see inside a barn. They may lamb outside once a year. The goal is for them to kind of manage themselves and it's much more, more extensive. Um, and so, and even within um, Canada, where we have a, a smaller sheep industry, for sure, compared to other countries globally, um, we see all those different systems. So we have very intensively managed prolific breeds and and more extensively managed farms as well. Um, and I think when we're looking at the, the colostrum literature, again, those risk factors are likely potentially different um, between between those different breeds. And that makes it even more challenging to have kind of general recommendations because we see so many differences um, in the literature. And so our work is going to hopefully help um, add to that. Uh, in our case, we want to specifically look at um, a really prolific breed managed in an intensive way. Um, and we're doing that because we think, you know, um, or at least we know that, that those are going to be the ones that are more at risk to have um, poor rates of, of passive transfer on the lambs and then have higher, um, potentially higher morbidity and mortality in those lambs. Um, and so hopefully our results are um, generalized to those uh, prolific, intensively managed breeds. Um, so, so yeah, so that work is is going to um, be fairly holistic. We're going to um, start uh, before the animals are, are bred and, and follow a group of, um, of ewes all the way through with the goal of um, helping add to kind of known risk factors for poor colostrum quality, as well as poor IgG levels in lambs. Um, but then also look at those levels in the lambs and look at predictors of um, disease, as well as performance in the lamb. So um, trying to help better pinpoint um, appropriate IgG levels we should be targeting in lambs um, that are therefore related to, to lamb mortality. Um, and on the converse side, you know, if we can get higher levels of IgG, are those the lambs that are going to grow better and, you know, even grade better at slaughter? Um, yes, that's that's interesting. Um, it's a very promising study. And what about colostrum replacers uh, for, uh, for uh, lambs? Yeah, so um, certainly in our prolific breeds, most producers are going to also have a, a colostrum replacer on hand um, because, yeah, often if we have quadruplets or more, um, some animals are going to need to be supplemented or if we have, you know, used for some reason that, um, yeah, aren't um, being good mothers or aren't able to be good mothers from other reasons, uh, we want to be able to, to feed replacer to the lambs. Um, and that's certainly being done and is a recommended practice. Um, however, one of the challenges uh, in is that uh, the replacers that we have available, while they're formulated for um, neonatal lambs and, and goat kids um, in the sense that, you know, our, our macronutrient ratios and stuff are appropriate, um, they're, they're bovine source. Um, so there, there are IgG levels in them, but they are um, bovine IgGs. And so um, there's definitely uh, concerns over how uh, protective those are for, for our lambs. Um, definitely we recommend using them because, um, you know, if you have a, 
a ewe that doesn't have enough colostrum or we have, you know, a whole bunch of, of lambs or kids to feed, um, it's important from like a calorie standpoint and a nutrient standpoint that they're getting that replacer. Um, but part of our study, we also want to, um, our first uh, study will be an observational study looking at those risk factors and predictors for lamb performance and lamb mortality. Um, but then going forward, we want to do a randomized control trial where we um, more specifically target higher risk animals um, and then block within litters to assign animals to receive or lambs to receive a supplement. Um, to see if kind of routine supplements. So I think on most farms, the supplementation is, yeah, if we have no colostrum or little colostrum available for those lambs, then they will supplement. Um, but we want to see if we um, supplement with those replacers um, for specifically high-risk animals, regardless of whether or not the you may have enough colostrum. Um, you know, is that going to make a difference with our antibody levels? And more importantly, is that going to translate to lambs that get sick less and, and perform better? That's great. So, uh, well, we had this really, really nice and um, insightful conversation about welfare and health. So uh, just before we, we finish, I was just wondering, I know that you work with different uh, other different areas and different topics. I was just wondering before we finish, if there is any topic or anything that you would you like to mention or um, uh, just tell us that you are also looking at or that you think that is interesting and relevant for dairy farming. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I've been lucky um, within you know, our college and, and within our university to collaborate with um, with quite a few um, different researchers uh, looking at, at different projects. Um, and um, I think one of the um, projects that um, I'm, I'm uh, involved with as a collaborator is um, out of the University of um, of Manitoba with uh, Dr. Megan King, um, and she's looking at the relationship um, between animal welfare and um, farmer, essentially farmer welfare. Um, so looking at levels of stress and and conversely looking at resilience in farmers and um, looking at how that relates to the welfare of, of their animals and um, kind of looking at it as a kind of one welfare approach. Um, I think that that uh, concept is really interesting. I think, um, you know, with all the the stresses of um, farming, and certainly we know from um, from lots of work within our, our university, um, looking at farmer mental health and um, and all the stresses associated with um, that are that are prevalent in in the farming community. Um, yeah, I think there there likely is a, a link there, um, and I think you know if we. Um, care about kind of the health of our whole um, community. Um, I think, you know, likely again, kind of similar to calves, right? If we improve one thing about our way we manage calves, it likely has multiple benefits. And I think the same thing. So if we can do things um, as an industry to support our farmers and making sure that farmers are, um, you know, we can hopefully deal with some of the, the stresses that they're experiencing and um, helping improve resilience in that population, I think it likely is going to have multiple benefits beyond um, beyond that community, but likely to, um, to the animal population as well. Yeah, that's right. I, I, I do think that's important to raise this this flag and farmers' mental health is something that we, we really need to think about. Um, and it's uh, it's nice that you mentioned that. Okay, Charlotte, so this is the end of this episode. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to participate and to contribute with uh, Dairy to Wealth. Oh, thanks so much. It was a pleasure <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> yes, and also would like to thank everyone that listened to us. Uh, I hope you like it. Uh, please share with your network and help us promoting uh, the Dare to Wealth podcast. Thank you very much.